So this paper is about uh, methodology and uh, basically what we do is critique a certain kind of argument that's very common in debates in bioethics. And uh, it's very common in debates in bioethics for um, people to make a claim about their opponents having a burden of proof. And the way this kind of argument often works is um, you know, a proponent for a certain position in a debate will provide a prima facie case for their conclusion. They'll say there are these good reasons for thinking that this conclusion is the right conclusion and therefore we should accept this conclusion unless opponents prove otherwise. The burden of proof is on those who object to the conclusion that the prima facie case has been made for to show that it's wrong and in the meanwhile and or otherwise we should assume that the conclusion for which a prima facie case has been made is correct. Um, so often there's that kind of claim that's made that the opponents have a burden of proof after this initial case for a position has been made. Sometimes those making this kind of argument will go further and show that the burden of proof can't be met by the opponents or that the you know, attempts by those who oppose to the conclusion in question um, you know, that they don't succeed in showing that the conclusion is uh, correct and they fail to meet the burden of proof. So this kind of argument, I think, is quite ubiquitous in bioethics. You'll come across it all the time. One area where it often comes up is in human reproductive cloning. One thing that will often be said there is that you know, there's a right to procreative liberty um, that provides a prima facie case for thinking that people should be free to use cloning if they want. The burden of proof is on those who object to cloning to show that it would be wrong. Um, it's actually made on both sides of the cloning debate. Leon Cass says, uh, cloning seems to be at odds with human dignity. The burden of proof is on those who are in favor of human cloning to show that it's morally acceptable and you know, not problematically at odds with human dignity or whatever. Same kind of argument is made in human enhancement um, as the first example I gave in human cloning. So it's often said there's a, uh, a right to liberty, procreative liberty is especially important. Um, people should be free to use enhancement technologies when they're reproducing. There's a good prima facie case for that freedom in virtue of the right to procreative liberty. The burden of proof is on those who are opposed to human enhancement to show that it would be so bad that it would be legitimate to interfere with the liberty at stake. I'll talk a bit more about you know, that particular argument um, and what follows. And you know, John Harris, <coughs> one of the people that for a long time has been saying that kind of thing in the human enhancement debate. In GM foods, right, so ge there's genetic modification of organisms. <clears throat> and an aim of genetically modifying organisms is to 
you know, boost food production, and you know, grow hardier crops that will help address um, poverty and famine and so on. Some people don't like the idea, they're worried about the idea of genetically modifying organisms, including you know, food organisms, and having them be in environments because they're afraid of the environmental damage that will do. Those in favor of GM food, they'll say, gosh, this, these GM organisms might meet this really important human need, addressing poverty. The burden of proof is on those who think it's dangerous to show that it really is dangerous and so dangerous that we shouldn't be doing it. Some people that object to GM foods or GM organisms say, GM organisms might be really dangerous um, the burden of proof is on those that want to use them to grow new foods, to address poverty, to prove that they would be safe. The kind of, this kind of argument is also made in the Oregon market debate. So this is the debate about whether or not people should be free to sell their kidneys, right? So there's a big sh shortage of human kidneys. Lots of people need kidneys, there's not enough kidney donors and therefore available kidneys in the world. One you know, increasingly popular idea about how we should address that sh shortage is that we should have a market, maybe a regulated market in organs. The idea being that if uh, someone wants to donate one of their organs in return for money, i.e. be a kidney vendor rather than donor, strictly speaking, well, then they should be allowed to do that. And Janet Radcliffe Richards, who's based here, is uh, someone that uses the burden of proof argument in that context. And we'll be talking about um, her use of the burden of proof argument in that context in particular. In fact, that will be a main focus of the analysis of this kind of argument that follows. In any case, the main <coughs> purpose of this talk is to critique this style of argument in general, to cr critique burden of proof claims in general and burden of proof arguments in general, but that analysis and critique will be made by looking at you know, particular uses of this kind of argument and that of Janet Radcliffe-Richards in particular. I guess I'm lucky she's not here today. So here's an example of uh, a burden of proof claim <coughs> made by John Harris in the enhancement debate. As I said, you know, he starts by appealing to the importance of procreative liberty. And so his burden of proof claim is as follows. He says, the burden of proof is not on those who would exercise this liberty, i.e. procreative liberty, or this right to enhancement to show what good it does. It, the burden of proof, is on those who would limit it to show how and to what extent its denial is necessary to protect either the exercise of liberty, of a like liberty for all, or is required to protect others or society from real and present harms or dangers. So this is a prototypical example of a burden of proof claim in bioethics. 
by you know, I think one of the most prominent users of this style of argument in bioethics. We'll look at uh, a bit more detail, as I said, at Janet Radcliffe Richards' use of this argument. Um, her prima facie case in favor of the conclusion that we should allow a, a market in organs appeals to the benefits to those who will end up receiving organs, you know, kidneys in particular, i.e. a bunch of people, uh, the, the lives of a bunch of people will be saved. So there's that really important benefit that's going to be achieved if we have a, a, a market in organs, because more people that would otherwise have died will live. So first she appeals to that. She also appeals to the apparent benefits to vendors of kidneys, i.e. they're going to get money for giving up their kidneys. They're going to give up their kidneys because they think it's worth giving up their kidneys for the money that they receive. So there's these clear benefits to the recipients of kidneys, lives being saved, and apparent benefits to vendors as well. That makes a pretty strong prima facie case for thinking we should allow a market in organs, or so Janet Radcliffe Richards argues. And uh, so therefore there's a presumption in favor of the tolerability of a market in organs, and the burden of proof um, is on those who oppose a market and organs to show that you know it would be so bad that uh, these uh, benefits that create the prima facie case in favor of a market and organs are outweighed. So. Working through a bit more the way she uses this argument, she said some opponents they might make an in principle objection to a market in organs. They might say that you know, those who sell their organs or that would sell their organs under such a market would be coerced by poverty. So they might think that that creates an in principle reason for being opposed to a market in organs. And anyone that's making that kind of in principle objection, so Janet Radcliffe Richards argues, they would need to one, show that a, a market in organs really would involve vendors being coerced by poverty. And uh, two, they would need to show that that was such a bad thing that it outweighed the benefits that she appealed to in the prima facie case in favor of a market for organs. Or they might make an in-principle argument saying that a market in organs would be problematic because that would involve exploitation. And she says, well, anyone that's gonna try to make that kind of in-principle objection would one, need to, meeting the burden of proof would involve one, showing that a market in organs really would be exploitative to those who are selling their kidneys, and two, uh, they need to show that that's a bad thing and such a bad thing that it would outweigh the benefits appealed to and the prima facie case she provides in favor of a market in Oregon. And likewise with other you know, in-principle objections one might make, in-principle objections appealing to um, a market in Oregon being at odds with human dignity 
for a market in organs um, involving problematic commercialism involving inequity and injustice. And all these in principle, in the cases of all these in principle objections, the objector would even show one, that the supposed in principle, in principle problematic thing is really occurring, and two, that that would be so bad that it would outweigh the benefits appealed to in the prima facie case. Other kinds of objections might be all, all considered objections. One might argue that, oh, all things considered, uh, market and organs would do more harm than good. They might appeal to harms. They might say, okay, vendors of those who sell their kidneys are going to end up suffering harms, i.e., they're going to be less healthy because they're only going to have one kidney. Um, and to meet the burden of proof for anyone making that kind of objection, according to Janet Radcliffe Richards, one, they need to prove that the vendors really would or do suffer harms from selling their kidneys, um, and they need to prove that the total harms that result to those who sell their kidneys outweigh the benefits that would be achieved by a market in kidneys, taking into account you know, benefits that vendors might enjoy and the benefits that recipients might enjoy. So meeting the burden of proof, for anyone making that kind of objection, we need to prove all that. Another thing she says is that uh, even if that can be shown, that wouldn't necessarily be completely convincing, right? Say if there was a certain kind of market condition where all things considered, the harms to vendors outweighed the benefits to vendors and the benefits to recipients, that wouldn't be enough to show that a market and organs would be wrong, according to Janet Radcliffe Richards. That just might show that the particular market being looked at was wrong, but it wouldn't show that some other market, you know, regulated in some other way, uh, wouldn't be fine, wouldn't be one where the benefits of the market would outweigh the harms. So the point there is that uh, it's quite hard for her, for opponents to meet the burden of proof because the arguments they would be providing would have to remain continually or permanently under review. Okay, so this is how the, um, her use of the burden of proof argument plays out with all considered arguments in particular um, in the case of claims that kidney sellers would be harmed. So those that make this claim, she says they need to show one, that kidney sellers are harmed and that the harms outweigh the benefits. First, she says they can't meet the burden of proof because there's no positive evidence of harms. Um, it's, there's not uh, convincing evidence that those who sell their kidneys would uh, suffer harms that outweigh the benefits of a market in kidneys in the case of a regulated, regulated market. There is some empirical evidence that you know, scholars, anthropologists in particular, have appealed to that seem to show that those who sell their kidneys to those who need them end up suffering bad outcomes. And uh, 
she says we can't count that as positive evidence of harms because normally where this is happening, where kidney selling is happening, is in places where it's illegal, where there are black markets in kidneys as opposed to regulated uh, markets, regulated legal markets. So the point she makes is even if it's true that some, there is some evidence that some people who sell their kidneys suffer harms in existing conditions in, this, in these black markets, that doesn't show that they would be harmed um, in a regulated market like she and others are advocating. That's part of her claim that opponents aren't <coughs> meeting or, and or can't meet the burden of proof. Um, even insofar as there is some evidence of harms to vendors, there's not evidence that the overall harms to vendors outweigh the benefits to recipients. Um, that would be quite a hard thing to measure. In any case, she says, you know, that evidence doesn't exist, even if we take into account, you know, for the sake of argument, supposed harms that uh, vendors suffer. In any case, that's one of the things that would need to be proved by her opponents who she says have the burden of proof. They would need to show not just that those who sell their kidneys end up being harmed, they would need to show that the total harms to the vendors outweigh the total benefits to uh, the recipients. And as I said before, even if that was proved in some certain condition, some market condition, say there was a market somewhere, there's a market in Iran. Even if it was shown in Iran that the, that the harms to vendors outweigh the benefits to vendors and to recipients, that would provide convincing evidence that the harms of markets outweigh the benefits of markets. That would only show that the harms in that market outweigh the benefits in that market. And that would leave open the question about whether or not in other markets, the harms would outweigh the benefits. And that's what um, needs to be proved by her opponents. And that's part of her claim about the burden of proof. Okay, so that's a quite a detailed look at the use of this kind of argument. And then what follows, I'm gonna critique this kind of argument. And in some of this critique, I'll be you know, pointing at Janet Radcliffe Richards in particular, and John Harris in particular, but some of these critiques are meant to be critiques of this style of argument in general. And it seems like one obvious problem with this kind of argument, which maybe occurred to you when we were back on this slide, is that it seems ambiguous um, which side in the debate actually has the burden of proof? It's ambiguous which side of the debate the burden of proof falls on, i.e., what side of the debate, on what side of the debate should there be a starting presumption? So in Janet Radcliffe Richards' case, she gives this prima facie case saying, you know, saving lives is good, um, you know, benefiting from selling organs is good for vendors. So the presumption is that vending should be permitted. But by the same token, one can imagine, one could easily make a similar style burden of proof argument arguing for the opposite con conclusion. One could say, 
poor and vulnerable people shouldn't be exploited. Um, markets and organs might exploit poor and vulnerable people. Exploitation is a bad thing. The burden of proof is on those who advocate a market and organs to show that it wouldn't involve um, exploit, exploitation of poor and vulnerable people. One could make that argument. One could make a burden of proof argument on both sides of the debate. So which side of the debate really has the burden of proof? Seems like it's not obvious who, if anyone, <coughs> side of either ultimately has the burden of proof. Um, both sides can make a prima facie case for their position and claim that the burden of proof falls on the other side. Same thing in cloning. Um, like I said, in the cloning debate, it happens on both sides. Those for cloning will say there's a right to procreative liberty um, that provides a prima facie case in favor of toleration of cloning. Burden of proof is on those who oppose to cloning to show that it would be you know, prohibitively problematic. And CAS makes the opposite. This is uh, cloning might interfere with human dignity. The burden of proof is on those who want to have tolerant policy towards cloning to show that it wouldn't interfere with human dignity in a prohibitively problematic manner. In the enhancement debate, I've showed how um, Harris makes a burden of proof argument. Some people are worried that human enhancement is going to lead to a social disaster. Some people are worried that human enhancement is going to lead to the end of the species. One could argue human enhancement might lead to a social catastrophe. Human enhancement might lead to a big disaster. Disaster is really bad. This creates a prima facie case against uh, human enhancement. The burden of proof um, is on those who are in favor of human enhancement to show that it won't lead to disaster, otherwise we shouldn't tolerate it. Likewise with GM organisms, as I showed, the debate, the argument gets made in both directions. So again, it's unclear who if, or which, if either side ultimately that, that the burden of proof ultimately falls upon. And you know, looking at how this can play out, one wonders, gosh, does either side really have the burden of proof <coughs> to begin with, given that this kind of move can be made in both directions? Is it just a, a merely rhetorical move that's made in debates rather than a legitimate philosophical argumentative strategy? This is maybe you know, one of the most powerful objections to this kind of argument. But let's look at some more. There's a question about what exactly do those who, uh, whom the burden of proof fall on really need to prove? What needs to be proven? One of my colleagues, uh, Ryan Tompkins, I told him we were developing this paper critiquing burden of proof arguments. He's like, oh, what do you mean? You know, I like burden of proof arguments. I use them all the time. I think they're you know, legitimate. I'm like, well, how so? And he says, well, what, the way I use them, he says, is um, I analyze a problem, and I say I have 
thought through everything uh, you know, that I can think of, and the best arguments seem to be in favor of A, and, and then I claim that therefore we should assume A unless um, others show that you know, A is false, the burden of proof is on those who object to A to show that A is false, and otherwise, or until then, we should assume that A is correct. So that might sound somewhat plausible, and so that got us thinking a bit more about this. And among other things, it raises the question of what exactly the opponent needs to prove. There might be some things that it's legitimate to say that the opponents need to prove, i.e. there might be some burden of proof claims that are legitimate and other burden of proof claims aren't legitimate. That was my reaction to his suggestion. So say that uh, one side of a debate makes a case with a certain strength for a particular conclusion. What burden of proof do their opponents need to meet? One might say that they, uh, the burden is on them to make an argument of comparable strength to the one that's been made. One might claim that um, unless or until the opponents make an argument of comparable strength to the one that has been made in favor of A, we should assume that A is true. How many, to how many of you does that sound like a plausible burden of proof claim to me? Julian's nodding his head, Dom, most of you. How many think no? Yeah, good. A stronger burden of proof claim would be to say that uh, the opponents need to, you know, prior fish case has been made with a certain amount of strength or force in favor of A. The burden of proof is on those who oppose to A to make a better case than that, and until then we should assume that A is true. How many like think that that's a legitimate burden of proof claim? Not even doing. Okay, and then the stronger claim would be to say that um, the privatization case has been made in favor of A. Um, we should assume that A is true until the opponents um, provide a conclusive case that A is false. And the burden of proof is on them to make a conclusive case that A is false. In the meantime, we should assume that. A is true. I think a lot of uses of the burden of proof argument are actually of this third really strong form. And, and we'll look at the other ones as well, but one would wonder, gosh, one side of the debate, they just make an argument of a certain strength, and then after they've done that, then the other side of the argument needs to make a much stronger argument. They need to provide a conclusive case. So one side of the argument provides a partial case, and then suddenly, the other side of the argument needs to provide a conclusive case. Um, that would be odd. Um, if, if that was the way that argument would work, there would be some benefit in just speaking first. Because if you spoke first, then you would need to have, you would not need to provide as strong of an argument for your position as your opponent would. And the same thing can be said about the second version. Right? If it was true that 
if you provide an argument of, with a certain amount of force, then that meant we should assume that the conclusion you're arguing for is true until your opponent makes a stronger case, then just by speaking first, you don't need to make as strong of a case, which would be <coughs> even one, the first kind of burden of proof claim, I think is illegitimate. If the claim is, I've made an argument with a certain amount of force that A is true. The burden of proof is on those who oppose A to show that A is false. And unless or until they do, we should assume that A is true. So that's the most plausible of these three claims about what opponents might need to prove. But even that, I think, is illegitimate. Suppose there's a really good, uh, there are really good reasons for thinking that A is true. And the opponents just don't make them. They don't come forward. They don't care, or they're doing something else. Or they just lack the ability to make the equally good case that might exist. Why should we assume that A is true if only a partial, you know, only a prima facie case has been made? If a conclusive case hasn't been made in favor of A, why should we assume it's true? Why shouldn't we just suspend our judgment? Why should we believe A until it's proven? The, the, the uh, legitimate thing to think, I think, is that we should believe A unless it cannot be um, proven to be wrong. It doesn't you know, matter whether or not those that oppose it happen to come forward and make the effort or happen <coughs> to have the ability to do what needs to be done to show that A is false or to make an equally good case that A is false. Okay, so the claim there is that even the most plausible um, of these three burden of proof claims appears to be problematic. Okay, another, in any case, those making uh, burden of proof claims, arguments should at least be very clear about what it is their opponents need to prove and uh, a burden of proof argument would be lacking qua burden of proof argument if it's not specifying what exactly needs to be proved. Okay, likewise with standards of evidence. You know, proofs have different standards of evidence. The idea of burden of proof um, you know, largely derives from the criminal law. So in the criminal law, you know, there's the uh, defendant being prosecuted and uh, the defendant defending himself or herself or the lawyer defending the defendant um, one side bears the burden of proof, the prosecution. And in criminal proceedings, they normally not, don't just need to prove that the defendant is guilty, they need to provide a very high level of evidence that the defendant is guilty. Right? So in the criminal law, it needs to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did it. In any case, in other cases of law, um, 
sufficient proof might just involve showing that there's a you know, preponderance of evidence on one side rather than the other. So sometimes meeting the burden of proof just shows that there's a bit more reason for believing one thing than another thing. In other cases, there's, there needs to be clear and convincing evidence. There needs to be clear and convincing evidence that the one thing is true and the other thing is not. And the third thing, if there's you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that the one thing is true and the other thing is not. So the point is that all proofs aren't created equal. And anyone making a burden of proof claim or burden of proof argument, it would seem that they would need to specify the level of evidence um, that their opponents would need to meet in meeting the burden of proof. So one claim is that this is something that should be specified. And then it would also need to be justified why such a high level of proof is demanded by the opponents. It seems like Janet Radcliffe Richards is really expecting you know, the third and strongest of these different levels of um, burden of proof. It really, think, it really seems that she is expecting those who object to a market in organs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the, the harms would outweigh the benefits, etc. And that raises the question of you know, if it's true that she is requiring such a high standard of, of evidence, why does it need to be so high? Why wouldn't a preponderance of evidence suffice? Likewise, Harris seems to demand a very high standard of evidence. Uh, for According to Harris, those who bear the burden of proof, those who object to enhancement, need to show that the harms that they're worried about are real and present, not future and speculative. Right. Not just maybe that there's going to be these harms, um, but there really are going to be these harms, and they're, you know, they're imminent. They're not just you know, theoretical possibilities or unlikely things that might happen. And then again, one wonders, well, why do opponents of enhancement need to have or meet such a strong standard of evidence? And one objection that might be made to Harris would be to say, well, gosh, what if it was, there was some low probability that there really was going to be a disaster? You know, what if there was a 2% a chance or 5% chance that toleration of enhancement would lead to the end of um, human beings, you know, the end of the species? That would be, I think, not real and present. Um, and it would be future and speculative, but that kind of concern seems to be one that he would rule out. But it would seem like, gosh, that would be a good reason for being pretty worried about enhancement, because that's a small chance of something really, really bad. And a small chance of something really, really bad is something to take very seriously. We shouldn't just ignore things that are a low chance, which seems to be what he's suggesting. Okay, as I said before, in the criminal law, there's a reason why, or they, they have these <coughs> different standards of evidence in different kinds of cases, and there's a reason why they have them. So in the criminal law, they require um, proving that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and there's a reason why they require such a strong level of evidence. The reason is that uh, we think it would be worse 
if an innocent person is punished, then it would be if a guilty person goes free. It would be worse to err in one direction than another. And because we think it would be worse to err in one direction than another, we put a strong burden of proof on one side of the debate or litigation rather than another. So we might think, okay, if that's a reason for um, determining who has a burden of proof and who has a really strong burden of proof, well, that kind of thinking maybe hasn't been employed in these burden of proof uh, debates in bioethics so much. What would happen if we use this line of thinking about bioethics? And I think doing that might actually work in favor of Janet Radcliffe Richards. You might think it would be worse if uh, people unnecessarily died because they didn't end up with kidneys because we wrongheadedly prevented markets and organs than it would be if people were wrongly exploited, right? Because it's worse to die than be exploited. So therefore, we should uh, err on the side of saving people's lives and place a strong burden of proof in the direction that she suggests. So that's a something in favor of Richards, which we're happy to admit. But it seems like this kind of uh, thinking might work against Harris. You might think disaster would be worse um, than having a peripheral procreative liberty infringed with. And uh, so therefore, we might think that insofar as this kind of, you know, the thinking behind high levels of evidence being required on one side um, in the criminal law in the context of the enhancement debate would give us reasons for thinking that those in favor of enhancement <coughs> would have to meet a strong burden of proof to show that enhancement wouldn't lead to you know, a social disaster. Because social disaster would be worse than interference with peripheral procreative liberties. Okay, one more point about standards of evidence is that not only does Richards arguably impose a really strong burden on her opponents, it seems like she requires them to prove the unprovable. So it seems like she might be asking them to do the impossible. Um, and that's partly because of something I've talked about, you know, I've mentioned a couple times, and that is that their arguments would need to remain continually under review. Right, so even if they showed that in a given market the harms outweigh the benefits, that wouldn't show that in markets in general, you know, in some other market that was regulated in a particular way, the harms outweigh the benefits. So there would be infinite possibilities, and so therefore it would be impossible to show that in all markets the harms would outweigh the benefits. And more than that, it seems like proving in a way that would satisfy Richards that the harms of a market would outweigh the benefits of a market, we'd actually have to have a market. How else would we prove it? It seems like the only kind of evidence that she's going to accept would be if we had an actual market where, you know, that's regulated in the right kind of way and so on, where we learn that the harms, all things considered, outweigh the benefits. And that's not going to be an acceptable thing to those that oppose markets because it would re require doing the very thing that they're opposed to doing. 
So that's kind of another reason why, uh, in a way, the, the demand seems very high and, and, and requires the doing of something that opponents are opposed to doing to begin with. Okay, this particular objection um, is not necessarily an objection to burden of proof arguments in general. In a way, it's not an objection to uh, Richards overall. It's, it just raises a concern about the methodology she uses. So the methodology she uses is she makes a prima facie case in favor of a market in organs. And then she looks one by one at different objections that might be made. And she shows one by one that none of those objections meet the burden of proof that she's looking for. And then concludes, therefore, a market in organs is you know, justified or legitimate. I should be tolerated and accepted. This concern is that it might be the case that when we look one by one, there's no one objection uh, that provides enough force to overcome the prima facie case in favor of the conclusion that the burden of proof argument maker is arguing for. But nonetheless, each of the objections might provide a little bit of weight that together add up to outweigh the initial prima facie argument that's been given for that conclusion. In Richard's case, she thinks that all the individual objections don't have any weight at all. And then so therefore, at the end of the day for her, there wouldn't be anything to add up. But the point here is just kind of a warning or something to keep in mind with burden of proof arguments is it might be the case that no one objection is enough, but together we need to look at the cumulative weight that can be provided, that can be provided by a set of objections, and looking one by one is inadequate. <coughs> okay, last but not least, um, the failure to satisfy burden of proof does not necessarily entail the conclusion that the burden of proof argument maker is arguing for. So again, thinking of uh, the case of Janet Radcliffe Richards, um, which she appeals to are, you know, these in, uh, initially appealed to goals, the benefits to recipients who receive organs, or who would receive organs if we had a market in organs, and uh, the benefit of vendors, and we should also keep in mind other legitimate goals like protection of uh, the poor and valuable, and poor and vulnerable. Even if it's not shown or proven that um, a market in organs is going to be prohibitively problematic for unprincipled reasons or for, you know, in virtue of all considered you know, all things considered analyses, that doesn't mean that an, a market in organs is gonna, is gonna be the best way to achieve the desired goals, right? So 
Um, markets might be one way of achieving desired goals, but there might be other ways of achieving desired goals, like pairing uh, organ donors with vendors, or organ donors with those who need them, um, increasing the supply of organs in other ways, right? By uh, finding other ways to get more organs from dead donors, or finding new ways to meet um, needs via stem cell research, you know, maybe growing organs via stem cells and so on. So even if it wouldn't be prohibitively problematic to have a market in organs, um, a market in organs isn't necessarily the best way to achieve the goals that uh, <coughs> Janet Radcliffe Richards appeals to in the prima facie case she makes. Another way we might achieve uh, such goals would be by you know, disease prevention, reducing the need for organs to begin with. Okay, so coming full circle a bit, um, at the beginning was the claim that, you know, of doubt that opponents to a view that's been argued for bear the burden of proof. Um, we think that there is a burden, you know, in debates about these kinds of things, about policy and so on, and the burden is on the policymaker or the decision maker to do whatever there is best reason to do, all things considered. So that's where the burden falls. The burden falls on the decision maker to consider, you know, everything that can and should be considered and to do whatever the, there is best reason to do. That's who the burden falls on, the decision maker, not on opponents of something. Now, in a way, this claim of Harris, you know, keeping that in mind, what we're claiming about who actually has what burden, keeping that in mind, this claim of, of Harris might end up, in a way, being correct. The burden of proof, or part of this claim might be correct. The burden of proof is on those who would limit it to show how and to what extent this denial is necessary to protect either the exercise of the like liberty, blah, blah, blah. Right, so, sure, if a decision maker or a policy maker is gonna interfere with procreative liberty, with policy interfering with human enhancement, he or she would need to show that, you know, the, uh, the benefits of that policy would outweigh the harms of it, all things considered. But likewise, if the decision maker was gonna choose policy that was tolerant towards something like enhancement, he or she would need to show that all things considered, the reasons for doing so are better than the reasons for not doing so. So it's not one side of the policy debate that would be favored. The burden is on the policymaker to do whatever is there's best reason to do all things considered. There's no differential burden of reason on other side of the debate. And I'll stop there, thank you.